Welcome back to the Better Way podcast, brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is the podcast where we ask, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Koselia, and as always, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Hui Chen. Hui, say hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are super excited for this episode because for the first time, Hui, it's not just me and you talking. We have a guest. I am so excited about this. So we are joined today by the one, the only, the incomparable Dr. Caitlin Handren. Caitlin, say hello to everybody. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are psyched to have you here <laughs> for a variety of reasons. And, and let me start by just saying this. So the Better Way podcast obviously is this journey to find better ways. And today our better way is focused on the role of cultural psychology and helping us tackle organizational challenges in more effective ways. Uh, but before we even get into that, I just want to say Hoy and I are happy to have you here because we found that being overprepared on the first two episodes wasn't a good look for us. So Caitlin, <laughs> I, I just want to let you know at the outset, we have decided to not prepare. Uh, we're hoping that it leads to a more free flowing conversation. That's fantastic. Well, I similarly did not prepare. So here we are. <laughs> well, you spent like the better part of uh, well, maybe more than a decade um, uh, becoming Dr. Caitlin Handren. So I think that you're I think you're well prepared for the topic. So Caitlin, who are you? Ooh, what a question. <laughs> Let me see. Um, well, to begin the journey to becoming a doctor, Dr. Handren, I'd say that my academic career actually began in studying romance languages. I studied Spanish and Italian and had the opportunity to live abroad and I think that's really where my love of culture developed. I was very interested in learning not only the language, but how learning a new language can show you a whole new worldview. And I'd say from there, I transitioned into psychology and really beginning to explore how we think and interact with one another. Can I just say this, uh, this is where I would like to just affirmatively express my insecurity because I am surrounded by these two people who speak between the two of them, most of the world's languages. <laughs> I want to say, allora, facciamo questa uh, in italiano. And that's okay, paura. <laughs> See? And, and, and I'm the guy whose last name is Koseli, and I didn't understand a thing either one of them. <laughs> so we, 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 we go from languages to psychology. Yeah, and I would say like most people young and interested in psychology, I thought the only option available to me was to become a clinical psychologist. And I had received the feedback at the time that if I wanted to go to graduate school, it would be important for me to get some research experience. So I looked through all of the labs at the University of Washington that were looking for research assistants, and I stumbled across the Stereotypes, Identity, and Belonging Lab. And little did I know that this was the field of social psychology, which would absolutely change the trajectory of my career going forward. So I discovered that there's much more beyond clinical psychology. And through this experience at the lab, developed a complete and absolute love for research. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you did while you were at Washington? 
Yes, absolutely. So there were two main areas of focus for the lab. One was looking at the intersection of race and American identity, and so how people, depending on their different racial groups, may be treated differently and how that um, can reflect on their American identity. And then we were also interested in looking at how stereotypes can keep women from entering STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. And we were particularly interested in the field of computer science, which has some pretty gnarly stereotypes that uh, can constrain who believes that they belong there and will fit in and be able to make friends and be successful. I want to see how that then led to your doctoral work and, and what your doctoral work was involved. Yes, so I was interested in going to Stanford to continue exploring identity and belonging. That was what my undergraduate research had been about. And I'd say that's really the trajectory. It was continuing along that path. But between my time as a lab manager at the University of Washington and arriving to become a graduate student at Stanford, I had one of those transformative life experiences uh, that included reading Hazel Marcus's book on culture. And it just blew my mind and absolutely introduced me to a whole new way of thinking about the world and psychology in particular. And so when I got to Stanford, I had the great opportunity to work with Hazel. And so I transitioned from thinking pretty traditionally along social psychological um, lines to thinking more broadly about culture and how our behavior is being shaped by culture in any given moment. I want to jump to how you define cultural psychology, because particularly interesting to me was you started your journey looking at how people outside of compliance world think about culture. They think about sort of national identities, the Italian culture or the you know, Spanish culture or the American culture. And people, as you probably have found once you started working with folks at the lab, that we are often talking about coach, organizational culture. So culture obviously exists at different levels. Um, would love to hear your take on how you would define that. Yes, it's such an important question. I think we often talk about culture without slowing down to actually consider what we mean. And I'd say that what really shaped my perspective on culture is just thinking about the ways that even to the core of how we understand ourselves and how we understand ourselves in relationship to other people, this can be shaped by our broader cultural context. And in the field of cultural psychology, we often use a tool called the culture cycle to make sense of culture and really simplify it and use it in a systematic way to um, organize our thoughts around culture since it can be a rather murky subject. So the culture cycle breaks culture down into what are known as the four I's, ideas, institutions, interactions, and individuals. And so the ideas are the broad pervasive values of a culture, or I can talk about it in terms of an organization now. So, um, so what does the organization stand for? What's its mission statement? What are its stated and communicated values? Also, what's its reputation? How has it behaved in the past? How has it handled misconduct? And then we can think about how those values and um, ideas become institutionalized through policies and procedures. So how what are the formal ways in which those values show up? For, for instance, how are people incentivized and what are the trainings and the onboarding processes like? Next, we can consider interactions. So this is how people are actually behaving. So how are your peers engaging with one another? What is the leadership doing? Are people actually walking the talk? 
And then finally, we think about individuals. And this is where we take the perspective of what is the psychological processing of the individual? What is their behavior? How are they feeling? Are they feeling included? Do they feel a sense of safety or not? And I think what's so important about using this framework is that we have the opportunity to think about all the ways in which these different levels of culture are constantly interacting with one another and they're mutually constituting. So they're making each other up. People are both shaping and being shaped by culture. And of course, we can think about this at the broad national level or for anyone who has traveled abroad or experienced a culture clash, those moments can be really salient. Yet we also know that these different cultures are emerging even within organizations, even within subgroups within organizations. And so by using this framework, by thinking through a cultural lens, we can begin to get a more complex and nuanced understanding of human behavior because we are paying attention to these broader factors that we know are shaping um, human experiences. Before we dive even deeper into cultural psychology and talk about some of the ways in which you're applying your deep, deep knowledge in, in practice, I want to talk a little bit more about behavioral science. So you're a cultural psychologist. You started off on a slightly different path. How do we define behavioral science more holistically? Yes, I'd say behavioral science is an umbrella term that captures a lot of different fields. It draws insights from fields such as cultural psychology, um, but also anthropology, economics, um, cognitive science. So it really has its roots in a whole number of different fields. Um, I'd say what has become very popularized and what it's maybe best known for is behavioral economics and nudges. So what has actually made it to the mainstream isn't perhaps as comprehensive as the field itself is, but I'd say what really uh, sets the behavioral sciences apart is the scientific method and the ability to develop hypotheses and collect data and reflect on that data and really um, pull out those insights. So for those of our listeners who maybe are more familiar with some of the more behavioral economic um, applications of behavioral science. Talk to us a little bit about how the point of view is different. How is the point of view on nudge theory and behavioral economics different from cultural psychology? Well, one reason even for the existence of cultural psychology was a recognition in the field that a lot of the research that was being done was being done on weird samples. And by weird, that's an acronym that stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And so we had a wealth of information on a very narrow set of the human population. And so cultural psychology emerged more or less out of necessity to say that there are ways of seeing the world and behaving and engaging that are very different than this um, Western weird model that exists. And so I'd say what cultural psychology does in this space, and especially I hope with behavioral science, is to push um, us to challenge some of the assumptions that just because we found it in one context, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to generalize or that it will be the same for other populations. And so I also believe that cultural psychology sometimes challenges us to take a more, as I mentioned, complex and nuanced way of looking at things. So often in the behavioral sciences, there can be this drive to try to simplify and reduce everything down to as few variables as possible. And I think we in cultural psychology 
deal with the messiness of there being uh, multiple things at play in a given moment and trying to think through how do you actually preserve that um, complexity without um, necessarily driving to reduce it to just its core elements. And just to, you know, level set for everyone, uh, Caitlin was the first RNG Insights Lab hire. So to set the stage, uh, you apply for a job at a law firm <laughs> at a uh, fledgling uh, behavioral science and data analytics consultancy within the law firm that had only just really launched about six months prior. Tell us about that. Why'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Why did I do that? Uh, no, it was actually the best move I've ever made. And so as I was applying for jobs, yeah, law, I had no background in law. Um, this was brand new for me. And yet I felt that psychology would still be relevant. Uh, I believe that to my core, that no matter where I go and whichever context I find myself, especially cultural psychology and the richness that that perspective brings, um, it will be relevant. And so what really stood out to me and the lab, of course, was Zach and your enthusiasm and uh, just the vision that you had for what this lab could be and the impact it could have. I was so captivated by that. And I think that as we look to the future and where things are going, both in terms of technology, but also um, globalization, our interaction with one another, I'd say that we increasingly need to have an interdisciplinary perspective and have people working across lines and being willing to enter spaces where they're not necessarily experts or even vaguely familiar and be willing to really forge those bridges and make connections and, ma and make sure those insights um, that are developing and growing in different silos make it out into the world. I cannot tell you how excited I was when I saw, uh, you know, the posting about the, the Caitlin joining the lab. And I am curious to hear, Caitlin, your thoughts when, as you started in this world of uh, doing ethics and compliance, what's your impression about how your expertise applies in this space and how ready or not people are to appreciate this expertise and make use of it? I'd say that so far there has been a lot of receptivity, which has just been so nice. It feels like the stage has more or less been set. The conversation's already being had about culture, and it feels like I just got to enter in and start having some of my favorite conversations with folks. And it's really nice to not necessarily have to start the conversation by selling why culture matters. Uh, there are some folks who, of course, don't necessarily understand that perspective, but I'd say more often what I've encountered is curiosity and a genuine interest in how do you actually do this work? And there are a lot of questions out there, I think, beginning even with the question of how do you define culture? What are we even talking about? And um, it's just felt like a great fit. And I have really had a wonderful time so far um, getting to share everything I've learned and share everything I'm excited about. So what I'm, what I'm interested in is there's a lot of talk about culture in the context of compliance. And I want to talk about compliance first, and then we can talk about some other areas of organizational 
focus where culture is important. But in the context of compliance, the discussion tends to focus a lot on um, the culture of ethics and integrity within an organization. We don't talk as much about the ways in which broader societal culture may impact the way that our compliance programs hit with people. But we know that people in one part of the world are different from people in another part of the world, and that those societal um, realities impact our organizational context. And so, Caitlin, based on you know all of your work, I'm interested to hear if you think that there's a, a role for that. And Hui, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, having worked all over the world. I think it's so important, and Hui and I have had this conversation too, even just the question of what does ethics mean? What do we mean when we're talking about um, ethics, it can be so subjective and it can vary across these contexts. And I think in the West, in Europe, and in the US in particular, we are somewhat culturally conditioned to not pay attention to culture. We have very strong individualizing narratives that tell us that we should pay attention to the individual and what they're doing and how they're thinking and behaving. And we really downplay how we're being influenced by these broader contexts. It's a great question that triggers a lot of different angles um, to, 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 to look at this. So, you know, I, I was also thinking a lot of times people, for example, assume that the United States has, has one culture. Yeah. Well, try to put someone from, you know, uh, Massachusetts and Alabama together. I have lived in different parts of the United States as well as outside of the U.S. and Europe and, and, uh, and Asia. Uh, they're all different I think, unfortunately, we're, we live in a very polarized time right now. And part of the reason that's polarized is precisely because people have different definition of what is ethical, um, what is the right thing to do in different circumstances. So I think when you're talking about these different layers of context, um, the, the, the different layers of the four eyes, then you really, you, you have no choice but to appreciate how complex this is. It, it really isn't something that you can boil down. If we just incentivize this, we'll get that. Yeah, I mean, I look at it from my own perspective and way you, you know this, part of my story um, is being sent to live in Beijing and to run a compliance investigations program on the ground over there and also play a pretty meaningful role in building the proactive compliance program. And so when I think about how culture first kind of became an important force in my own work, it wasn't in the context of, you know, uh, do we have a strong culture of integrity? Do we have a strong culture of compliance? It was more, here we are in a completely different part of the world trying to build a program that is at its core inspired by driven by a very western point of view that leads to clashes that leads to tension and i think that not acknowledging that and not addressing it is a misstep i think it's a it's a gap what do we do uh, to embrace the complexity while at the same time drive meaningful change? I'd say the first step is to listen. And it's important at each of these different layers of culture and complexity to understand just 
where you are in the context and to be asking the questions of how do things work around here? How are people feeling? How are they reacting to different situations? And so I think at the, for instance, at the broad cultural level, there is a wealth of information that you can gather about how things are done in a particular cultural context, but you can also ask and pay attention and find these things out. And then in terms of how things are operating within the system as well, how is it interacting with those broader forces? I think, again, the answer is to um, ask questions, collect data, and to really um, try to paint a picture of how things are operating through the data to tell a story about what's going on. I, I, I want to mention um, a conversation that Caitlin and I had recently had with a uh, potential client um, who was talking about some cultural concerns um, and there, you know, the, that that were manifesting itself in all kinds of different ways in the in the organization. And it reminded me of uh, a story that I had heard about uh, some ER doctors who noticed that they were getting these same kids with asthma attacks coming back week after week. And they started looking into it. And it turns out that these kids live in a building that's infested with mold. So you go in, you clean the building, and they stop having asthma attacks. And and by the way, I after I told that story uh, in in our spontaneous conversation with the with the potential client, I actually now went to look it up, right? So there there is actually a um a, an article in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology on this um that went beyond the building. So they were correlating ER visits with um mold and pollen as recorded by the environment in the environment of a particular part in the state of Delaware. Um so now you're looking at two levels, the, the the house they live in and the place, you know, the city they live in. I feel like a lot of times in uh, in when we look at organizational misconduct, we're treating it like the ER doctor. Every time you have an asthma attack, we come in, we give you some inhaler, you go home. We never go and fix that environment. So I remember asking you, Caitlin, in, in that call and saying, you know, so 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 what do we do to to inspect the building? And your answer was, it looks like we need to do that listening, that cultural assessment exercise, is that that building inspection, basically. But what I like about it is, Caitlin, I mean, you say you say in a very simple way that like we want. We, I would start by listening, and I think that what you've described is very much a diagnosis. Like that's where it starts, right? And I mean. And, and that's been in some ways part of my frustration with this world of this organizational, you know, culture compliance world that we operate in is that there's really not enough meaningful intentional effort to diagnose the culture. I think there are a lot of assumptions made about culture. I think people rely on what they see. Uh, uh, but what you're really describing is something more more intentional. Uh, really focusing on assessing the culture. And so to that point, I want to ask you a question, which is, what does that assessment look like? You know, and I think a lot of folks maybe have in their mind, you're going to tell me you're going to run a survey. <laughs> so, uh, so what what are you going to do? And why is it? Uh, why is a traditional survey not actually what you're talking about delivering? Yeah, so I can begin by saying that our framework and our approach is very much rooted in the four eyes of the culture cycle. And it's the, an acknowledgement that when we're thinking about culture, we need to be thinking about it at multiple levels. So when I say listen, 
it's listening not just to the people and to the leadership and what they ideally believe things should be, but it's also quote unquote, listening to the patterns of the organization and how um, how decisions are made within the organization in terms of the policies and the procedures or in terms of the actions that the organization has taken. And so there are really a lot of different layers um, where we're analyzing and collecting data. Um, so to answer the question or to respond to the point about traditional survey methods, I think often the approach that is taken is to put together a long survey of questions asked on Likert scales ranging from one to seven or from one to 10, strongly disagree to strongly agree. And to ask those questions to really gather as much data about the organization as possible from as many employees as possible. And I'd say what the shortcomings of this method are, um, there are a number. Um, one being that the, the person asking the question really constrains um, what is possible in terms of the data collection. It's really constrained to the types of questions that you're asking. And then we also know that people responding to these surveys can often be doing it rather mindlessly. The questions aren't always as cognitively engaging as we would hope. And there's also now this experience of survey fatigue. At this point, people have taken a lot of surveys and are not only getting kind of sick of it, but they're also beginning to question what's the point? Uh, where is all this data going? Uh, what change is actually being enacted with it? And so when we collect data, we really attempt to to merge both the qualitative and the quantitative. And so we like to ask a lot of open-ended questions to really allow the respondent to bring to the table what is most interesting and salient to them. And so rather than constraining it all through Likert scale questions, we ask open-ended questions like, if you were to share with a close friend what it's like to work in this organization, what story would you tell? And then we have respondents code and interpret those stories themselves so that it's not us as researchers interpreting the stories ourselves. It's actually giving them the opportunity to tell us what it means to them and what it's like working at this organization. And so that's how we do data collection at scale. But as I mentioned, leaning on the four eyes, there is a lot of data that we would want to collect, whether it's the information that's provided on Glassdoor to the information provided on the website to information about the policies and procedures. There's a whole wealth of information and data that we can be paying attention to. Yeah. Great. To take us home, um, the Better Way podcast is all about us finding better ways. It is about the journey to identifying and operationalizing better ways. So one of those better ways that we've talked about today is cultural psychology as a mm -hmm. tool in the toolkit. Yes. What are your key takeaways? What do you want us to leave you with about how cultural psychology can have an impact or what we can learn from cultural psychology to have an impact? Increasingly, we just can't deny the deep interconnectedness between our brains, our bodies, and the environments in which we're immersed. And so I think that we need to be paying a lot more attention to culture. And that's something that all of us have the opportunity to do, um, to take the step back and reflect not just on our organizational culture, but also our national culture, which, whichever cultures we're immersed in. And begin to pay attention to what are those forces that are shaping us, what we decide are 
um, good, right, and moral, and really take the time to become familiar with um, some of those broader influences so that we can ultimately have more agency. So I think the more that we're able to recognize the forces that are shaping our behavior, the better able we are to to change and modify <laughs> some of those forces for the better. I think the time has come for you to be the first person other than Huey and me to take our standard questionnaire inspired by Proust, inspired by Bernard Pivot, inspired by James Lipton, inspired by Vanity Fair. I'm trying to cite and credit as many people <laughs> possible uh, for fear of being uh, accused of uh, appropriation. Mm. So uh, the first few questions, you have choices. You can answer one uh, over the other, and then there's some that are just standard. Are you ready? Are you ready, Dr. Caitlin Handren? I'm so excited. So ready. All right. So your first two questions, the option is, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? You can answer that. Or you can say, is there a quality about yourself you are currently working to improve? And if so, what? Hmm. Going back to some of the points made earlier, I would love to know new languages. I just feel that language is such a such a beautiful way to get to know a new culture and a worldview. And uh, something that's been on my mind lately is... Um, the language of the people whose ancestral land I'm on, the Ohlone people in the Bay Area. I am just so curious about the stories and um, just all the history and how much of that is embedded in the language. And so that's something that's been on my mind lately. Amazing, I love that. I love that. As someone who has tried to learn another language and failed miserably, um, <laughs> I both admire both of you, and uh, and and I think that's a great answer. All right. So your second set of questions to choose from uh, are: Who is your favorite mentor? You don't have to say me. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> or who do you wish you could be mentored by? Wow. I have been so blessed. I'd say that three people came immediately to mind and it's impossible to pick. So I'm sorry, I'm just going to linger here for a moment. Uh, Sapna Charyan at the University of Washington, I'd say was really my first mentor and absolutely set me on this path. And I'd say really taught me a love of research and a love of rigor. Uh, she is very dedicated to doing things well and doing things right. And I take such it's just so inspiring and I really have deep admiration for her and her work and then I would say Hazel Marcus my next advisor who just completely expanded my worldview and exposed me to so much um, really has been so foundational in terms of how I think about the world and my research now and then Zach of course I'm gonna keep you in there <laughs> so I would say so much of just believing in myself just just really going out there and understanding that um, anything is possible and we can do it and we can do it as a team. I, I just feel like I've taken so much encouragement from you in terms of, um, yeah, not being afraid and being willing to go out there and just go for it. That's really nice. That's, that's great. Um, thank you. Um, and on the, the Hazel Marcus, I mean, to be able to have the opportunity to like meet one of your kind of idols, like for her to inspire you in the way she did, and then for you to get the chance to work with her, that's, that must've been pretty special. Oh, absolutely. What is the best place where you have worked or what is the best job paid or unpaid that you have ever had? 
You know, I have been so fortunate because at each step along the way, I've felt like I'm in the best place I could ever be. And so I felt that way when I was at the University of Washington working for SEPNA. And then I felt that way as a graduate researcher. I felt that way at Spark. And now I absolutely feel that way at the lab. It just, it's, it feels like all of my life has led me to this moment, all the skills that I've been training and um, learning have given me what I need and want in order to succeed and thrive in this space. And so I especially want to shout out just our team too. I, I think it's such a fantastic team and I wake up every day excited to get to work with everyone at the lab. So the That's lab, good. absolutely. So the next few are kind of more rapid fire. Okay. Um, what is your favorite thing to do? Ooh, I love to do art. I um I do a lot of journaling. I do a lot of drawing. I recently have been uh, doing a lot of watercolor. I've been <clears> doing <throat> octopus. I've been exploring that through watercolor. <laughs> Octopuses? Octopus? Octopi? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, all right. What is your favorite place? Oh, I just got flooded with such a beautiful feeling of so many places that I've loved. Um, I guess one that's always near and dear to my heart is uh, the Pacific Northwest. I, I grew up there and I just think the land is so beautiful. I feel so much gratitude. Uh, speaking earlier about um, the Ohlone people whose land I'm on now, I really appreciate that in Seattle, there's such a strong presence of the indigenous people. And uh, I feel like that's really shaped a lot of my worldview. And I just really value um, the time that I spent there. What makes you proud? I feel probably the proudest about being on teams that I really admire and look up to. You know, I, I believe in the work that we do together and I think it's stronger because we are a team. And so I really take a lot of pride in the products we put forward. That's great. All right. This is, we're going from like deep to very shallow. Uh, what email sign-off do you use most frequently? <laughs> I I resort to thanks, exclamation mark, usually. <laughs> and what trend in your field is most overrated? Ooh. I, and this might be controversial, I am really excited and curious about what conversations are going to emerge when we begin moving away from talking about um, the brain in terms of system one, system two. I, I just, I'm curious to know what's possible as we transition to think beyond the dichotomy between those two. And uh, I think there's a lot of really important and interesting work happening in neuroscience. And I, I it's just a question of how do we actually apply it in ways that are accessible and um, practical. So to Hui's point earlier, that translation piece is so important. And so I think System 1, System 2 has been such a powerful tool in terms of helping us understand just how much of our cognition is happening outside of our conscious awareness. And I guess I'm just curious now, given some of the misunderstandings that have emerged because of that, I think there's a lot of um, expectation now that, you know, if we just lean more on system two, or if we rely more heavily on that rational thinking, then we can overcome some of our biases. And I, I think some of those conclusions could use some challenging. All right. Last question. 
what word would you use to describe your day so far? Fantastic. (laughs) Today has been a day full of team meetings and getting to work with folks. And it's just such a joy every time I get to speak with um, you all. Terrific. Thank you so much, Caitlin. You will be back 100% because there is so much more to talk to you about, but that is all the time that we have for today. Thanks to everybody for tuning in to this episode of the Better Way podcast and for continuing to explore with us all of these various better ways. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash rginsightslab. You can also subscribe to this podcast wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we've talked about today or the work that we do in the lab more generally, or if you just have ideas for better ways that we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.